Hey, everybody. I'm here today with Russell Targ. I've been waiting a long time for this interview, and it's been made possible because some documents that were really critical to a program he was working on that I have great deep admiration for uh, were declassified, allowing him to come forward and share what was going on in one of the major spy programs for the CIA, of which he was intricately involved in training people uh, that had had no previous experience in the world of remote viewing. It's just, to me, one of the dearest subjects to my heart. So without further ado, we go to Russell. It's so good to see you again. Good morning. I'm very happy to chat with you. (laughs) We were just having a conversation um, before I started recording about Um, something that happened many years ago, and I'm going to get to that because I first met you in 1984 when you were with Keith Harari and your daughter, and you were doing some experiments in remote viewing in the Soviet Union. Now, this is before the wall came down, before Perestroika, and a lot of people find that really fascinating. Like, how were you able to collaborate Because science seems to extend beyond politics, beyond intelligence, beyond all of it. It seems that science has a way of somehow creating a type of connection and camaraderie that you can't get through almost any other means, even in the darkest of hours. So we're going to get to that. But first of all, over your shoulder is an entity, a being, a great being that you have great admiration for. And I'd love to start our conversation with him and what you learned about the ability of the mind once it can be relaxed. So take it away. Do you want to know why do the laser physicists have Padmasambhava with <laughs> all the wall behind him? Indeed. Well, I'm, a, I'm a Buddhist. I found that they are the ones who greatly diminish my suffering. I like their teachings. And it just happened that Padmasambhava I uh, wrote a book 1,200 short years ago, wrote a book called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. And uh, the Buddhists, even before Padmasambhava, but it was he who spelled out the fact that you can quiet your mind, see into the distance, see into the future. In fact, what Padmasambhava teaches is that your nature is timeless awareness. That's who you are. You're not really made of meat and potatoes, but your nature is timeless awareness. And he said that if you believe what you, if you think you are what you see in the mirror in the morning, you're in for a lot of suffering. Indeed, indeed. In fact, I interviewed you about uh, maybe eight or ten years ago. Again, after you'd written a book, um, is it, am I correct on the title? I'm drawing it to memory. It was called End of Suffering. That's right. End of suffering that had to do with this attachment we have, and you use some amazing examples about, for example, a man's identification with what he's done in his life, with his business card, and the amount of suffering that happens when that's taken away from him. And I thought you did a beautiful uh, rendering in freeing oneself from that in that book. And well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, that that was beautiful, and. One thing that's interesting here is you have this incredible, uh, many, many years long Buddhist practice. You also um, were part of Theosophical Society many, many decades ago in New York City as a young man um, going to attending Columbia. And so the mysteries have always been part of you. And let's talk about how you went from your, 
I, know, I already heard your interview with Jeffrey Mishlove, which was beautiful, in which you talked about uh, how you could do card tricks and such. And people thought you were cheating at a bridge, for example. So you had some talents. You had an innate interest in the hidden truths of life, the hidden nature of reality. So let's talk about how you ended up becoming a nuclear physicist, and then we'll segue over to the CIA. Well, my earliest interest was in magic, and I was doing magic on the stage in New York. And one of the kinds of things that a magician does is called billet reading, where he pulls a piece of paper out of a goblet that's written on by somebody in the audience, and you hold it up to your forehead, and you say, I see there's a woman in the audience uh, who's, who's lost her dog. Is there somebody there who's lost her dog? And I know for a fact there is, I read it earlier with a previous piece of paper. So she'll say, oh, yes, can you, can you help me find my dog? And I may or may not be able to do that. But occasionally, the, the trick is that I know she's lost her dog because I've read the paper before. But occasionally, I can supplement my trick by the fact that an image comes to me of what her house looks like. And that was my clue as a young teenager that the psychic stuff I'm reading about might actually be correct, that I would actually get images pertaining to her house and the stairs going upstairs and the patchwork quilt on her bed. And, of course, she's jumping up and down. It's fantastic. How could you do that? And the answer is, that's magic. That's uh, pure clairvoyance or telepathy. And I was aware of that uh, as a teenager. So, Russell, you were aware of it. You were playing with it. You were actually able to practice it yourself. Um, And this is the trick that I think a lot of people, everyone's curious about it. And uh, probably most of the people watching it, if they don't have these abilities developed already, would love to have them developed. However, the notion of having to go completely quiet and be comfortable with not knowing and not naming seems to be what thwarts most people in this effort. What was it about you early on that was able to just open up and be a receiver? Well, partly I got interested in psychic abilities because of my very bad vision. So somebody who can't see what they're doing needs all the help that they can get. And I'm sure that I spent more time with my eyes shut than the normal sighted person. And it became clear to me from card tricks and stage magic and so forth that psychic abilities were available. I don't think that I have any particular psychic prowess. In fact, I wrote a book called The Reality of ESP a few years ago where I have a chapter which I teach people how to do remote viewing. There are many classes you can go to. If you go to the uh, internet, you'll find that there are lots and lots of people who teach remote viewing for thousands of dollars on a weekend. You do not have to pay a lot of money or eat porridge at the feet of your guru. Uh, Psychic abilities, remote viewing is a ordinary ability that we have, we all have. That is, Padmas and Bhava talked about Our nature is timeless awareness. The great physicist in the 20th century, Ernst Schrodinger, said consciousness is a singular of which there is no plural. There's only one consciousness. We all share it. 
and the separation in consciousness is an illusion. The people who have thought about Schrodinger, in addition to perfecting quantum mechanics, also was interested in Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. Advaita means no separation. And Raman Maharshi was a great Advaita teacher in our lifetime. And all these people were aware that there is no separation in consciousness. All the way back from the time of Patanjali, 500 years before Christ, in his little book on the, uh, the, the, the it's, it's his sutras, I've forgotten exactly what the uh, name is. He has a chapter called Powers, where he says, yes, you can use your psychic abilities to be in touch with the divine, and you can look into the future, heal the sick, look into the distance. So this is... So my point in mentioning this is to make you realize this, that psychic abilities are not new age. No. This has been written about, uh, explained for 2,500 years. Agreed. And some people um, are naturally a little more skilled at doing this just, just because of the nature of the way their mind is wired. Maybe they can relax a little bit more. Um, and we're going to talk about some of these extraordinary abilities, but you know, I look for, I, I know this is a very idealistic statement, but I do look forward to a time in our future history when this is such a well-developed muscle in each one of us, um, innate to our character where we don't live in this world of shadows and lies which is a great sub, uh, um, segue into your journey with the um, CIA, which certainly had its shadows, and it was certainly based on secrecy. Uh, I feel that once humanity can evolve and mass, um, we have a different kind of world ahead. But meanwhile, let's talk about what it looked like in the 1970s. You were a laser physicist. You got some grant money from the CIA, and you started a program with, uh, with uh, Hal Putoff at Stanford Research Institute, and take it away on how this began. Well, I had been doing laser physics from the time before there were lasers. I was working on trying to make a laser starting in the 1950s with Gordon Gould, who's a physicist who eventually got the patent for the laser after a big struggle. Uh, we did not make the first laser, but we made some. And then I went to California. I began to have children. And the Upper West Side is a nice place to live, but it's a hard place to raise children. So I came to California and set up a laser laboratory where I worked for about 15 years. But I'd always been interested in psychic stuff. In this laser lab, I built a uh, psychokinesis device where you could move a electron beam with your thoughts. And I built an ESP teaching machine. This is in 1965. I built an ESP teaching machine trainer. And you can now get that at no cost from the Apple iStore called ESP Trainer. So you can tell it's a, it's a good app if it lasts for 60 years. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> good job on that one. But you were obviously trying to bridge the world of psychic phenomena, which you had experience with and believe needed more exploration, with the world of science. You wanted to have validation for this. And so is, is that why you chose that particular career path? 
Well, I chose the laser career path because I was interested in science and interested in lasers. In addition to magic, a natural thing for natural profession for somebody who doesn't see very well is to go into optics. Maybe you can do something to help yourself. Mm -hmm. And I did that 15 years and I became quite well known. I was very successful as a laser scientist, the early laser pioneer. And I felt that I had enough credibility with the funding community, with the CIA, with NASA, so that I could make a quiet transition from laser research to ESP research. So I was able to go to my old customers at NASA and at the CIA and said, I've been doing hard stuff for you now for a long time. I have a new idea. Uh, I want to teach people how to get in touch with their psychic abilities. Might be good for the astronauts to learn how to do that. And it just happened that I was invited to a conference on speculative technology where Werner Von Braun was in attendance. And I brought my ESP teaching machine, and Von Braun did extremely well with the machine. He got very high scores. And he just turned to Jim Fletcher, who was the administrator of NASA, and said, well, why don't you give these guys some money? I think they may have something. So with all of my teaching machine and the NASA conference, that I was able to then go to SRI and say, NASA will support us. I got some dough. Will you let help put off in me start a program at SRI? Interesting. That's the first time I've heard of this aspect of Werner von Braun's character. He's usually brought in in other contexts, but that's fascinating. So you now are given what in the day was a lot of money, a million, two to million dollars a year for a budget. And uh, less people think that it's an incredibly sexy thing to do. You know, people think CIA, spy training, all of this, you know, Tom Clancy. No, it's a very quiet affair. Talk about how these experiments were originally set up before we start really bringing in some of the players, one of which I'd really like to get into. Well, one of the things I want to tell you about is I, I mentioned that I had written a book called The Reality of ESP that teaches people how to do that. But books really are passe. Books are so 20th century. But I wanted to share the remarkable things that we did with NASA and the CIA. So I've just produced a film called Third Eye Spies, which is going to come out next month. I'm so excited. And the thing that's exciting about that is that although our, our project was classified top secret, for decades, the CIA contract monitors have now retired, and through Freedom of Information, I was able to get our work declassified, along with 70,000 other documents. So our two very secret contract monitors are now able to come on camera and says, yes, Target is describing some amazing things to finding submarines and hostages and downed airplanes. But we were there, and it's all true. What Target's saying is true. And the fact that I can have our contract monitors on camera enthusiastically saying that they were there and that it all happened made it possible to build the film. 
I'm so excited for you. I've seen the trailers, different ver- versions and lengths of it. Um, I-, I think this is going to be an astounding success. You're talking about Kit Green and Ken Kress, right? The very ones. Okay, very good. So let's talk about Sid Gottlieb, how you were entered into this, and there are shadowy bedfellows involved. Now, as you said in your interview with Jeffrey Mishlove, after all these documents were released and after everything you did, you were not involved in killing anybody. You weren't involved in the nefarious stuff. You were in a quiet place. You were with your viewer. You were the trainer. You were the interviewer. You were given an envelope and simply asked to look. So let's just lay that straight. You weren't part of that. It wasn't it wasn't the way a lot of people, I think, tried well, to... Well, Gottlieb was really a nefarious character. He had started MK Ultra yes. in the 50s, in which innocent people were given LSD, and some of them died. And, in fact, Gottlieb was sort of the godfather behind our program. I came to CIA and tried to sell it, but in the, I now have learned that in making the film uh, that Gottlieb was our, our secret supporter. And we met with him, of course, and he wanted us to give LSD to our remote viewers. But I knew enough about psychic abilities to know that was a bad idea. Because if you, once you have LSD in your system, first of all, you can't do analytic tasks which are required for remote viewing. In remote viewing, if you close your eyes, you're going to see all sorts of images, and some of which are from your memory and imagination. Some are brought to you by ESP, and you need training to be able to separate the psychic signal from the mental noise. And if you're high on acid, you can't do that. In addition to the fact that if you're high on acid, you don't want to do that. You've got other internal, more interesting things. So Gottlieb was a very smart guy. He understood that. Uh, He liked what we were doing, and he supported us, even though we were not using um, hallucinogenics to further the activity. And the way this would work is we had a kind of, we were playing sort of psychic hide-and-go-seek, was a part of our program that worked most successfully. Um, someone in the laboratory at Stanford created a list of 60 different locations in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I didn't know what they were. I didn't want to know what they were. And then a potential remote viewer would come to us, and I would say, Hal has now taken a card from the safe, and he and your friend are going to go hide somewhere. I have no idea where they are. Uh, I'd like you to quiet your mind, close your eyes, and tell me about these surprising images that show up in your awareness. What do you see that doesn't belong to you? What's surprising? What unusual clear image shows up? And then they will tell me that they see something or other. And... Since I don't know the answer, see, this is a scientific experiment, but since I have no idea what the answer was, except that it's something or other in the San Francisco Bay Area. It could be a church, a railway station, a swimming pool, 
uh, mountainside, truly anything, anything at all. And I have no idea what the, I don't know what's in the pool or what today's target is. So I am free to say, well, it's interesting what you said. Um, for example, if they say, it looks to me like Macy's, I can say, well, secret, I won't tell them this, but basically that doesn't sound to me like remote viewing. Mm -hmm. so I'll say, well, let's take a break. What do you experience that makes you say Macy's? What's the image that comes to you? Because I know that saying Macy's is an analytical task. Mm -hmm. You generally don't get analytical information. You get feelings, shapes, forms, colors, so forth. And I want you to tell me the images that come to you. And you'd be interested to know that even our friend Padmasambhava said that when you're expanding your awareness into timeless awareness, uh, you cannot name things and you can't grasp onto them. You've got to experience the images. And he wrote that he understood the mechanics of remote viewing 1,200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Wrote them all down for you. Right, indeed. And okay. my job is a kind of psychic travel agent that I would be. I would sit with you and say, "Quiet your mind and tell me about the images that come to you." And then I would help, even though I don't know that people have a hard time understanding this. Even though I don't know the answer, uh, I can help you separate the signal to the noise. Yes. For example, if, if your, your task was to read a book that was written in French, and I don't know what's in the book, but I do know French. So if you start quietly speaking in German, I say, well, let, let's start over. Uh, I don't think you're looking in the right place. See, I don't know what's in the book, uh, but I know you're not speaking French. But so, Russell, let me ask you a quick question here. Because you are, even if you say you're not, you know, world-class viewer, um, you are intuitive. Obviously, you've worked with intuition for many, many years, starting as a kid. Is it possible that your own intuition was also beneficial to you when you were doing the interview process and helping people refine the search? I wouldn't be surprised. But what saved me from being a perpetrator here is that this work has been repeated all over the world. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. probably a talented interviewer, let's say, but this has been done at Princeton, it's been done at Duke University, uh, it's been done extensively in Edinburgh. So it's not that I have the key to psychic abilities. Uh, a interviewer who really pays attention uh, can assist uh, a viewer. A an amusing thing that didn't make it into the film is our contract monitor, Ken Kress, once gave us uh, instructions. He just said, I want you to describe Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin. And it's very unusual that somebody would give us the name of something. But again, he could tell me where to go, but he knows for a fact that I have no idea what Brezhnev's office looks like. I mean, that's basically secret information. I'd have no idea to know that. So I sat down with 
my friend Hella Hammond. Now, to digress for a moment, Hella was a photographer, re renowned uh, professional photographer and a friend of our family. And she was brought in as a control because we had done experiments at SRI with Pat Price, who was a very psychic police commissioner, and Ingo Swan, who taught, taught us how to do remote viewing, and Kit Green, who's a physician, said, I want to see what somebody who's not a famous psychic does. What if you, I want you to find a control. And Hella promised me that she had never done anything like this before. Uh, she's busy with her children and her photography. And she had never done gone into the psychic realms. And I taught her how to do remote viewing. And the payoff was she turned out to be the most reliable psychic we ever had in the program. Her formal studies with us were more significant than Pat Price, who we considered the most psychic person in the world because he could read documents. So he was in a class by himself. So Hella and I had the task of finding Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin. And she said, okay, I'm walking down the hall. A lot of everything is red there. And at the end of the hall, there's a door that's covered with red leather held in place by brass upholstery tacks. And that's what I see. But of course, that's not the answer to the question. So I said to her, as though we're in a kind of shared lucid dream. I said, okay, Hella, I'll open the door and you can tell me what's going on there. And she said, well, it's dark, which would be appropriate because it would be eight hours ahead of us. It would be nighttime in Russia. And I said, okay, I'll turn on the lights and you can look around. And she said, all right, I see a red square all lit up on the left. I can see out the window. And on the right is a big wooden desk covered with glass. And behind the desk, there's a door in the wooden wall behind the desk. And of course, I have no idea if that's true or not. Sounds like it could be true. So I said, well, let's open that door and see what's behind the door. And she said, oh, it's a steel stairway going down. So I said, well, let's go down the stairs. So here we are in the heart of the Kremlin going down the stairs. And she said, she said, well, it looks on the right like there's big banks of computers. And I began to feel frightened. Yeah. I, I have a lot of clearances, but I don't have a clearance to be in the Kremlin's computer facility. So I think that's enough information. Let's get out of here. And we <laughs> terminated. So this is kind of like a, shared out-of-body experience. Hella yeah. and I, sitting in our little lab in Menlo Park, took a trip through the Kremlin. And then it happened. Two years later, I was lecturing in the Kremlin. I had an invitation from, and you know part, and you know part of this, I had an invitation from the Soviet Academy of Sciences after I had left SRI uh, come and tell us what you've been doing, what part of which had been published. So I obviously can't talk about secret stuff, but I can talk about what's already in Nature magazine. And they said, well, 
as long as you're here, that's very interesting what you describe. Uh, is there anything you'd like to see while you're here? And so, as a matter of fact, I would like to have a look at Brezhnev's office. I don't need to see um, Premier Brezhnev. I would just like to see his office. And then, well, we can arrange that. We're in the Kremlin after all. We just took a stroll down the red line, red fabric hall. So the red door with the upholstery tax, big brass upholstery tax. And we went inside and I saw red square on the left and the desk on the right. I did not go down into the computer room, but everything that Hella experienced was right there for me to see two years later. So this was a kind of joint experiment sitting in Menlo Park describing what was going on in the Kremlin 6,000 miles away uh, with very great verisimilitude. As you know, uh, that became the basis of how I initially met you in 1984 is before you left for that trip. And did you come back to do the experiment with Juna or did it happen on that trip, during that trip? Juna Davidishvili was a Russian healer who had worked with Brezhnev to keep him alive at a time he was very sick. So it's all quite contemporaneous. Yes. Juna was a healer and a psychic, and one of the things we wanted to do, as long as we were in Russia, I wanted to do a remote viewing with Juna. So we had our partner in San Francisco go hide at different places two days in a row, and then Juna would describe on film for our photographer, Carol Daniels, she would uh, record what Juna said and then we got home and we were able to verify that uh, what Juna said was correct. My daughter, Elizabeth Targ, who is a psychiatrist and Russian translator, she's the one who interviewed Juna and tried to pull out. Juna thought that this was all crazy and she didn't want to jeopardize her cushy position as a healer doing crazy stuff for the Americans. And we told her, the Soviet Academy of Sciences was there in her nice apartment, and we told them, we'll take responsibility for this. Juna is just doing us a favor. Don't hold this against her. But it turned out she did very well. She did remarkably well, because we talked before you went, and you came back with the film, and I was the first journalist in the U.S. to put it on the news. I actually got it on the news. I was a newscaster at the time, and I just found out when we were talking before this, I don't have a copy of that, but you do. So we're going to try to share that with people. It's, I've always regretted that I never had a copy of that report I did with you back then, uh, 35 years ago now. But she was looking at Pier 39, and I remember the um, consternation because she didn't understand why she was seeing animals with glass eyes, and it was the merry-go-round and the cupola above it and so forth. And she was, she was dead-on accurate. That's right. It was a big deal at the time. I'm glad you remember that. Oh, I do remember all of it. I remember that report. It was one of the favorite things I've ever done in my media career. And not only that, 2020 then, so it's a big deal. It went on national television on 2020 after that, shortly after that, as a matter of fact. So this was making its way into the media. 
But in the 80s, things were different. It never really got picked up on as much after that in mainstream media. Why do you think that is? Well, well, one reason is that it was classified secret. But and you told our, me. <laughs> but but our, our little adventure in Russia was after I'd left the program. Yes. The pro, you, you, so you had a top secret program going out at SRI, but I was debriefed from the program. I could talk about what's in nature and the proceedings of the IEEE, and I can certainly talk about what I did when I went to Russia. So you, you can't really... Eventually, the CIA gave gave up the program outside and probably are carrying it out themselves in the basement of the CIA, or that's what uh, Kikreen says in our film, that there, to the best of his knowledge, is still going on. Of course, if you had such an asset, why would you ever give that up, is to be able to use ESP to your favor for any variety of reasons. And well, that's what we think. I, I agree. That would be very naive to think they would give such a thing up. Now let's go back to the days at SRI and let's talk about, I would really like to talk about um, Pat Price because of his abilities to view the kinds of things he was viewing and what ultimately happened to him because, you know, this was a dangerous time. And I remember reading one book in preparation for my interview in 1984. Don't know I can't remember what it was right now. Mind games. It no. It was. I can't remember the name. But in it, it was talking about programs in Russia where they were attempting remote strangulation, for example. Now, this kind of came out in a pop way in the movie Men Who Stare at Goats way later on. And I know some of the guys that was based on. And so do you. Let's talk about this some was, of uh, psychic experiments behind the Iron Curtain. That's it. That's it. That was a book. Trander and Schroeder. Yeah. Described this in the early 1970s, this remote strangulation. And we have our good friend Larissa Valenskaya on film, in our film, talking about her experience as a Soviet researcher contemporaneous with that. And she, she was on the spot. She had data from the remote strangulation experiments where a psychic in Moscow would have the job of strangling his friend in Leningrad. I remember that clearly. So essentially, um, what's happened is you're now in the middle of this. You have you, Pat Price is among you. Let's talk about how you found Pat Price, what he was capable of, the kind of things he was seeing, and ultimately what happened with him. Well, the first experiment that Price did with us we were given coordinates of something, and Kit Green wanted us to describe what was there. Now, it turned out the coordinates were of a log cabin in West Virginia, but that log cabin was only 200 meters over the mountaintop from a National Security Agency listening site. Super crypto secret antennas listening to Russian satellites reflected off the moon. There was, no, there was basically nothing more secret than a NSA listening site. So Pat Price came to us and said, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'd like to participate in your program. 
And Hal Putoff said, well, at the moment, uh, we're describing coordinates for the CIA. I have no idea what's there. Uh, here are the coordinates. What do you see? And he drew uh, the circular, big circular area with antennas. And he said, but the interesting stuff is underground. He said, underground, I see three green filing cabinets and the big file on something called Rackup. It's a bunch of project with pool names like Rackup and Cue Ball and Eight Ball, Twelve Ball, so forth. And he wrote all the, gave us all those coordinates and we, we sent them to Kit Green. And Ingo Swan had said, given us similar descriptions, but not reading court, not reading names. And all of what these guys said was correct. That the NSA had a site just like what they described. And the code words for this ongoing top secret program were correct. Even the name of the program was top secret. So we had a big investigation. First of all, the CIA was very mad at Kit Green. But the CIA, the owners of the site, says, you're, you're an intelligence officer, Dr. Green. Why are you targeting psychics in California on our top secret facility? Do you think that's a, a smart thing to do? And he said, well, I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know. They, they, I gave them coordinates of the log cabin. I didn't know you had a facility just over the hill. Yeah, okay, and therein so that, lies the so problem. That renewed support for our program. That uh, gives a new transfusion of money from NSA, no, from the CIA and NASA and the Army Air Force and the Army. Eventually, uh, the intelligence community eventually got concerned that they had to bring all of their secret task to the psychics in California. They would much rather have it under their control. So we were given the job of training a half a dozen army intelligence officers how to do remote viewing. Now, as always, training is not very hard to do. You sit somebody down and say, your colonel has gone to hide someplace in the Bay Area. Tell me about the images that come into your awareness. That's a training. And then they will tell me what goes into their awareness. So if you have somebody who is up for the experience, that is, they've come to me, they'll do what I tell them. I tell them to quiet their mind, describe in their awareness what surprising pictures show up and draw those, then they're, they're ready to go. You know, what's... Another layer to this that's, to me, um, fascinating is that when you did the original experiment with Juna, for example, this now this was later. So, and I think uh, these experiments had been going on at Duke University as well, as I recall. One thing you chose to do in that one was, and you didn't reveal this to me till we got into the story a bit, is that you had actually had her view three hours before the images were selected. So we're looking at the ability of the mind to certainly transcend linear time. 
And so we call this a non-localability. Non yeah. Non-locality is a new hot topic in modern physics. This is not just ESP. Right. Uh, and the most interesting thing I know from my 20 years work is it is no harder to describe a target chosen in the future than one contemporaneously. So you could give me a task. Uh, tell me about the book that's sitting on my table in front of me that you can't see, and I could try and do that. Or you could say, after this interview, I'm going to randomly choose a book by throwing a die. Tell me about the book that I'm going to choose in an hour. That is no harder to do than it is to describe the book you see right now. Because it's the idea that we live in a complex space-time. Space-time is made up in such a way that there is always a path from where you are here and now to some other place then and there in the future. There's always a path from where you are to some distant place, and that path has no distance. And all through the Buddhist teaching, the Prajnaparamita up to Schrodinger today, people are saying there is no separation in consciousness. Your consciousness fills the universe and you're able to describe what's going on anywhere in the universe and our idea supports that. So this is not something that newly came out of SRI, but uh, Buddha knew that, potentially was aware of that. Uh, Padmasambhava wrote a book about it, so did lots of other people. But Russell, the implications are massive and beyond most people's comprehension. That would be to say that event had already occurred or that the field of possibility was so absolute that no other event or choice could have occurred. And that's where I think a lot of people get tripped up over the notion of nonlinearity because they're thinking, well, are we then just living a program? Has this already happened before? Are we creating it in the moment? It gets into much larger questions. And I, just for a moment, I'd like to know your thoughts on that before we continue on Pat Price. Well, because we live in force space and familiar territory, it's very hard to describe that. In a nutshell, we could say something is going to happen. There's an hour from now, you're going to find a book and pull it down, and that will occur. So I'm not making it occur. You have free choice what book you're going to pull down. So there's an event waiting for me out there in eight space, which is actually going to occur, except there happens to be no distance between me and that event in eight space. My consciousness has available to it everything in the physical universe that is, is happening or is going to happen. So what the psychic sees is what eventually happens. He doesn't see the probable future. He sees the actual future. Yes. And, and this is a part, of course, that we all find incredibly fascinating. Let's go on to Pat Price. People often have the idea that I'm driving down the freeway and I get an intuition that something bad is going to happen. 
And if you're accustomed to going with your intuition, then you'll slow down or change lanes. I had that experience once on my motorcycle where I was driving to work along a long curvy road and it suddenly came to me, gee, at the speed I'm going now, if there was a board in the road, uh, I would hit that and crash. I better slow, and I just slowed down as I was thinking about it, slow down and slow down. So when I came to the two by four lying across my path, I was just able to bump over it and not crash my bike. I, and I think many of us um, have had these kinds of experiences enough to understand there's obviously something else at work. Dean Radin calls it spooky action at a distance and so forth, that we are, all of this is entangled in this one. That's what Einstein called it. Einstein, and he's replicating it now, yes. <laughs> Einstein was very concerned about spooky action at a distance. Yes, yes. Although he wrote a favorable preface for a book by Upton Sinclair called Mental Radio. Einstein was a friend of Sinclair, who was a famous muckraking author. Yeah. And Sinclair had done a number of telepathy experiments with his wife. And uh, Einstein saw that book and wrote a nice preface for it. That's Pat Price, you're asking me about him. Pat Price, I wanted to go back because... He basically could see anything. He could read documents. He could do whatever was required of him. But he wasn't a spy. And his life became very complicated and, and also ultimately rather tragic. Because I want to show the humanistic element of this. When you're working with people who are just incredibly talented, but they don't know the craft of the, and the protocols of what has to be done if you're in the spy industry. So... Share a little bit more about what happened with him once they became aware of the depth of his ability, the breadth of his ability to see. Well, the last formal experiment that Price did for us was to describe what's at some particular coordinates that happened to be in the Soviet Union. And he described a giant crane rolling back and forth on rails, such a big crane it was rolling over a building. And in fact, there was a crane at the site they had in mind, which was a Russian weapons factory. And Keith Green and Ken Kress were very excited about this because Price's drawing of the crane very greatly resembled uh, the crane that was there, giant A-frame crane. And they said, well, what's going on underground? Good question. And he said, well, they're making a giant sphere 60 feet in diameter, and they're welding that together out of gores, which are slices of, well, what do we slice? Like, like slices of the pineapple that you then are slice. Anyway, uh, sl slices of the sphere that they're putting together. And he described how that was being built. And that like turned out to be all correct. But they didn't discover that the sphere and the gores, they didn't discover those until two years later, which was after Price's death. So for a ESP researcher, that means that he was experiencing this thing in real time. He was not reading it in the answer book at, at a later time. And the CIA was so impressed with Price, they said, you're really too hot stuff 
to be out with the ESP researchers in California. This is too dangerous because we realized that Price is essentially omniscient, that he could read the launch codes for the missile. He could read the codes in the president's launch card to launch the nuclear missiles. We got to get you under better control than out here hanging out with uh, Russ Targ and Hal Putoff. So they brought him to Virginia and hired him as a uh, worker, I don't know, as a um, contracting, contractor for the CIA and put set him up in a farm in West Virginia. So the last time I saw Price, he was in his bib top overalls uh, shuffling through the hay barrels, hay bales. Mm-hmm. And we saw him at his, at his farm and he died just a few days after that. This is interesting because um, and it, I find it a fascinating story because it just shows the things that can't be controlled in life. And so Pat was a Scientologist and his, um, what are they called? Not a reviewer, the person, auditor. auditor. He and his auditor were close. He would call him and he would speak with him about the things he'd been doing and the things he'd been viewing. Is that correct? That's right. What we didn't know at the time, and especially what the CIA didn't know at the time, is each day after his top secret adventures with Ken Kress, Price would talk to his auditor and be debriefed about the top secret stuff that he saw and what he was doing with Kress. This was a huge breach of uh, CIA security and national security that this guy was telling, of all people, the Scientology organization. And after a certain period of time, after a few months with the CIA, Price mysteriously died. He did, and he died. conversation with Uri Geller about this, because Geller did a lot of psychic stuff for the Mossad. And Price and Geller wanted to know, what do I think? And I said, it's like in the movies. You want to know, was he pushed or did he jump? And the question is, did he have a heart attack? Or did the CIA kill him? Or did the Russians kill him? All of which were possible. He did have a heart condition, so he had a heart attack. Now... I sit here now at 85, and I look back at Price at 55, so he doesn't seem so old anymore. I mean, he functioned as a healthy, young, 55-year-old man. Uh, uh, CIA could have killed him because they were worried that he was leaking secret information, and the Russians could have killed him because he was looking at the Soviet Union describing what they were doing. But um, both what we'll never know. You said though that he was aware his time was up. He was That's right. He, Just he, before he came, he was going to come out to visit us at SRI, and I I know that he called some of his friends essentially to say goodbye. He called one of my good friends, Eleanor Frieda, who is our publisher, and lived near them. Was a friend of Ingo as well. And he changed his plans to visit his son in Salt Lake City before he came. 
but he only got as far as Las Vegas and he had some sort of um, paralysis or stroke or seizure in uh, Las Vegas, all very mysterious. Uh, Kit Green said that an autopsy was a, he was cremated before anyone could see the body. Yeah, that's not normal procedure. Not normal procedure and is not true because Hal and I went to the funeral of Pat Price at the Scientology Center in Los Angeles and it was an open casket funeral and Price was there quite intact. Right. I have a question here. Now, this is just coming in kind of sideways, odd question. Uh, what was he doing in Las Vegas? I mean, I would think with abilities like that, people might, civilians might tend to use them to say, go to the tables or something. Now, he had friends in Las Vegas. Oh, okay. And the other thing that I didn't mention is just before he left Virginia, he bought a million-dollar term insurance for his wife, Anne. Yeah. He was able to give this million dollar insurance to Ann just before, and I know that that's true. Yeah. uh, Before he left. So he was confident, at least at a psychic level, that his life was in imminent danger. Yeah. Well, that would make sense if anyone was able to tap into that. And, you know, this this kind of, um, this is, I don't know if this is even appropriate to ask you because this was a long time ago, but now the relationship between Russia and the United States is back up again. We don't know what is a show, what's faux and what's real, but is there anything you learned about the times when you were working with the CIA in terms of a mass kind of collective consciousness of the Soviet Union that you would make comment on even today under Putin and what's occurring now? Well, I think there's no more collective consciousness in the Soviet Union than there is in the United States. I mean, in America, people believe every crazy possible thing from Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump. Right. No way to characterize what what do Americans think about something. Right. In Russia, there was probably more acceptance for psychic abilities. Mm -hmm. Our host in Russia was Joseph Golden who is a very humanitarian uh, internationalist who set up our whole experiment between uh, Moscow and San Francisco and arranged for us to uh, work with the Soviet Academy of Sciences. And shortly after that, he was imprisoned or put into a mental hospital for a short period of time. The idea was that anybody who would do such a thing with the Americans must be crazy. Yes, indeed. You know, it's interesting because one of my mentors in life was a very unusual woman who came in the guise of my ballet teacher. And her name was uh, Valabovi, and she was a Russian that went out during the Bolshevik Revolution as a little girl with her mother. But one thing she kept telling me during those years was that the spirit of the Russians and Americans were actually much closer than we understood, and that the Russians had a great passion for not only just the arts and poetry and music, but for the mysteries of life. And they were embracing them on a much deeper level than our a scientific, scientific materialistic society here was ready to accept at the time. 
Is that I mean, that's pro- I mean, you certainly have a lot of great Ru- great Russian writers, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Turgenev and all these thoughtful people who are ahead of their time. Um, and we don't know, and that was accepted. There's a, I know that the, the, my good friend Joan Halifax wrote about the shamans in Russia, and so there's mm-hmm. a great acceptance of shamanism. So that, that's true among the people. Uh, and Lenin believed in, Lenin believed that consciousness extended to even down to atoms. He thought that consciousness was everywhere. And Lenin supported, um, I think Vasiliev is, is who it was, there was a, Soviet biologist who was doing ESP experiments where he would do hypnosis at a distance. And that was under Kremlin support in the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. So there's a tradition of interest in psychic stuff in the Soviet Union that's probably ante- is a good antecedent of what was going on in America. Yes, indeed. And I would like to ask you, because I know I can't keep you too much longer here, I would like to ask you one more thing, Russell. Really, as I said in the very top of this interview, when we come to a time when these abilities within ourselves can be used at will, where we can't keep these dark secrets from one another anymore, we can't deceive and trick one another anymore, it'll be a good day, even if um, it's a little uncomfortable getting there. And so what I'd like to ask is for anyone who has little children out there, what would you recommend by way of starting to help them keep their, not only develop, but what they have coming in even, keep that intact and develop it so that they comfortably can use their abilities throughout their lifetime? Well, the outcome of this timeless awareness is a, com- is a society that's more compassionate. So yes. a, a wellness society rather than a materialistic society. So as we become aware that there's no separation in consciousness, that we're all connected together, then we'll become uh, concerned about the wellness and the health of this whole society. And we'll then have hopefully less focus on greed and materialism, more focus on compassion. There's a great lack of compassion in America right now. Countries become very fractionated, as you know. But as you discover that there's no separation in consciousness, as the evidence becomes more and more clear to individuals as they quiet their mind and can tell when and Gertrude is going to come for a visit, and the child knows in advance where the grandma is right there on the phone. Now, in countries like Iceland and Holland and Brazil, that kind of psychic ability of children is accepted and nourished. So if the child says, hey, I think that grandma is coming for lunch, or I see her getting ready to come, in Iceland, you'll set the table for grandma, rather than than disparage the kid and tell him to quit making it up. Yes, indeed. That'll be a beautiful day. And on just a little aside that's funny, because you were talking about the remote viewing uh, session in which the person was saying Macy's, right? I've just got to tell you this. My friend's 
tease me all the time because I, I've done some of this, you know, I've played with this a bit and, uh, um, on an unconscious level, when I'm not playing with it, if I need something, I don't like shopping. I hate going and shopping. don't like the process of it. But if I need something, um, what will happen is I'll just get a picture of the storefront, whether it be Macy's or whatnot in my mind. I'll walk in. There's the item on sale sitting right there, usually just past the front door. So it can even work for shopping, okay? You cultivate, <laughs> cultivate that. <laughs> yeah, and, save some time. And if you want the first instructions, you can take a look at my book, The Reality of ESP, and next month, my film will be out, Third Eye Spies, which is quite a dazzling demonstration of psychic abilities, show you what, what superstars can do and what's available to you as well. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm so glad you've finally done this. Now, is it going to be showing in theaters? Or are we going to be see it through, seeing it through digital platforms? Where are we going I to be? Principally able to? digital platforms. Okay, excellent. Um, are we looking at some that we might know, perhaps Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, or some other private sites? I don't know. Probably everybody. I, okay. I, I think that the, I'm going to be on Coast to Coast on December 12th. Okay. And I think on that day, the film will be available everywhere for download. Excellent. Well, that's, I can't wait to see That's the current plan. Okay. You have some excellent trailers that have already been produced. And anybody watching this right now, you can click below and watch the trailer. And again, Russell, I'm very much looking forward to being reacquainted with um, the television piece we did back in 1984. So I'll look for that in the mail or in a digital file somewhere. Meanwhile, that to you. I wish you the very, very best on this film. I think it's absolutely critical for people to well, see. Well, thank you very much, Regina. I'm happy to chat with you. Okay, take care, Russell. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com. And again, to see the trailer for Russell's film, you can click on the link below. Dr. Russell Targ, a laser physicist world-renowned for his experiments at Stanford Research Institute in remote viewing, recently made a trip to the Soviet Union with an interpreter and film crew. His intent was to prove in an international arena that seeing something far out of the range of normal vision is a reality. Juna Davidi-Toshlivi, a Soviet psychic healer, was selected to be the viewer in the experiment. She had never remote viewed before and had to be convinced it was possible, particularly after learning the target site was 10,000 miles away in San Francisco, California, a place she had never visited. Elizabeth Targ, Dr. Targ's daughter and a medical student at Stanford, was the interviewer, having taken six years of Russian. She helped Juna keep her mind open so the random impressions could enter. Juna drew primitive renderings of what she saw and verbally relayed the impressions as well. She began describing Pier 39. She described a rectangular structure surrounded by ocean. On it she saw a plaza with a circular structure in the center and another type of circle outside the first circular structure. Other things that she described um, she was talking about this plaza, and she uh, mentioned people walking the plaza, which um, would be appropriate. She said that, that this is a place where there are children. She also described pointy, um, pointy ears and glass eyes, which she saw in a profile, and she mentioned that specifically. So then she said, I see this profile of an animal. The viewing was a success.